air popping popcorn. It was, oh, it was just depressing. It was so sad. That's like skinny pop. It's like healthy popcorn. But yeah. It doesn't taste good. No. But do boys really pop popcorn? I remember like it was girls' floors that smelled like popcorn and boys' floors <laughs> smelled like socks. Like that was, you know what I mean? Like, like bong water. They both kind of smell similar. <laughs> <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, Orleans Parish District Attorney Jason Williams ran on a progressive platform promising to do away with his predecessor's aggressive tactics. But now, in an extraordinary move, his office has linked arms with prosecutors from the newly elected Governor Jeff Landry's office to handle cases instigated by the state police. And in a city surrounded by water, New Orleans water bills are among some of the highest in the nation, and seniors in particular are feeling the pinch. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel. Hey, Nick. Hi, Carolyn. Aiden McCahills, an intern for The Lens through the Tulane Center for Public Service. Hey, Aiden. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey, Carolyn. Nick, there was a press conference at the Superdome last fall with newly elected governor and former AG Jeff Landry, his new attorney general, Liz Murrell, and DA Jason Williams, who together announced a partnership between Williams' office and the AG's office to handle some cases here in Orleans Parish, which on the face of it is pretty remarkable reversal from Williams' campaign pledges to reform the office of the DA here in New Orleans. Let's start with Let's remind everyone about the campaigning that Williams did for office and all the reforms that he talked about doing, which ultimately got him elected. Yeah. So he ran on a very progressive platform, uh, you know, kind of aligning himself with other prosecutors around the country that were running on basically criminal justice reform, um, making an effort to kind of roll back mass incarceration, find alternatives to incarceration, um, reduce the use of excessive sentencing, ending the practice of using the habitual offender law, which is kind of the the Louisiana three strikes law, um, and, you know, really focusing on kind of violent crime, the most serious offenses. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, we can talk about things like not charging juveniles as adults, a whole, a whole range yep. of um, reforms. And, you know, he really was trying to set himself aside from previous district attorneys, most notably Leon Canizero, who came before him, and and you know Harry Connick uh, um, before that. Um, and to some extent, all the candidates in the race were running on reform platforms. Basically, all of them were trying to set themselves apart from from um, from Canizero. But Williams went the furthest and and kind of made the most uh, progressive promises and, you know, got got some endorsements from the reform community for doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've talked about how he's gone back on some of those those uh, promises. Yeah. Inch by inch, little by little, one case by one after case by case, he, he would turn his back on those promises and and in fact do the opposite of what he said he was going to do. We've been, as you said, we've been talking about it, we've been noting it, but then meanwhile, Canazero went to work up there, um, up there meaning in the state house um, for the AG's office. And now there was this pretty remarkable 
sort of locking arms on the on the steps of the in the shadow of the Superdome saying they're now going to work together. Tell us what they said. So the agreement, as they announced it, um, and this was, like I said, at the end of November, was that the AG's office would handle all cases that arose out of state police arrests or investigations. And, you know, state police have operated in New Orleans kind of um, part-time. They've, they've done some some task forces here and there. But at the same press conference, they also announced that, that there would be a greater police state police presence in, in uh, the city. So this basically is the DA handing over authority to the AG's office to handle state police cases that it looks like there's going to be a lot more of um, in the coming months and years. Can you can you pause for a second on that? I want to I want to get a little more granular on more of a state police presence in the city of New Orleans. What specifically did they say about that? How are they going to use the state police more in New Orleans? Well, they had been tight-lipped at the press conference, but since then, they've announced that it's going to be a 40-person, a 40-trooper permanent unit in the city um, that will kind of, you know, not have any specific um, location. You know, previously, state police had had a French Quarter task force that was there all the time, but this unit will police the whole city. It's not entirely clear what sorts of cases they're going to focus on based on some conversations I've had. It sounds like they're going to focus on more serious violent crime, although well, that remains to be seen um, one, you know, once they get here. So that's kind of what we know right now. There'll be this 40-person permanent unit, I think, frequently collaborating with NOPD on investigation. Okay. So now let's, let's discuss what that means, because we've got this candidate Williams, who's now DA Williams, who, who pledged all this reform and progressive move uh, in the city, turning over, ceding a lot of this power now to um, an office of the AG and a police task force, if you will, of state police who are going to be handling maybe violent crime. We don't necessarily know. But then if if they're handling, if they're then um, going after criminals and then handling the prosecution of those criminals, it will be in direct contradiction, a direct contradiction with what Williams had said he would do with these types of cases, yes? Yeah. Yeah. As I kind of try and point out in this story, you know, Williams and Landry ran on basically opposite criminal justice platforms. Right. Um, And, you know, Williams during his campaign basically painted Hannah's arrow and and Landry style prosecution as you know um, this incredibly detrimental racist uh, you know vestige of a past era and now basically what we're seeing is him handing it back to them um, voluntarily you know we should note that AG's offices prosecute local cases sometimes but it's usually at the request of the district attorney mm-hmm. and, and most frequently when they have to recuse themselves because they have a conflict of interest. I've never heard of a situation in which a local district attorney hands over, you know, an entire portion of cases to to the AG's office. And, you know, most people I've talked to hadn't, hadn't heard of that happening um, before either. So this is really a voluntary thing by Williams to, um, yeah, like I say, give give control back to kind of the, the very 
style of prosecution that, that he ran against? Uh, you know, I don't want to be too grand about it, but it's almost as if the Falcons and the Saints join linked arms outside the Superdome. <laughs> Cats and dogs living together. Yeah. Just, it is kind of crazy, right? It's so incredible to see it, right? They just they talk they talk stuff about each other all the whole time, almost like it was like a like it was a pre Saints Falcons game, and now they're just standing next to each other. Like, yeah, well, I mean, no secret, I'm a Democrat. No secret, he's a Republican. We can get along, you know. It's but yeah, if you saw Saint by a Falcon, would you be suspicious? It feels fun. <laughs> I mean. You know, Williams went as far as to accuse Canazero of orchestrating his own vindictive prosecution on tax fraud charges to try and try and end his political career. You know, that that's quite an accusation against someone. And then to, you know, hand over the prosecution of, of you know, likely dozens, if not hundreds of cases in this city to um, an office that is that's run by that same person. It, yeah, yeah, it's pretty remarkable, I think. Okay, so what did Jason Williams' office have to say about it? Nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, both the attorney general's office and the DA's office didn't really respond to specific questions about the agreement and didn't turn over the agreement until yesterday after we had published our story um, and, you know, they came out with this announcement yesterday, like, like I said, shortly after we published and said, you know, we finally formalized this agreement and, and signed it. Um, in fact, Jason Williams and Jeff Landry had signed a formal agreement the day they made the announcement mm -hmm. on November 20th. Um, and, you know, I had requested that and I'm sure dozens of other journalists had requested it as well, um, but it had not been made public until you know, yesterday, over two months later, Williams and Mural uh, did sign an extension of the agreement yesterday, but it had already been in place. So, you know, there, it, it really should have already been been turned over, um, as, as you know, in my opinion. But, you know, the agreement, one of the one of the big questions that we had before we saw it was kind of whether or not the cases would be first brought to the DA's office who would make a determination whether or not to prosecute them. And then if they were going to turn them over to the AG's office, you know, for, for the actual prosecution or whether or not the AG's office would be making that determination themselves. And based on the contract that they released, it really looks like the AG's office will be making that determination. Wow. Um, that they're going to have full control over these cases from the investigation at the beginning to bringing the charges um, to trial, to even anything that occurs post-conviction. So they'll wow. really have, have a full authority. So what's the response been around the city about this? Um, you know, I think it's, it's split. I think people who, uh, you know, voted for the DA and, and really kind of believed in his, his reform message are frustrated and, and can kind of see that this is kind of a culmination of, of, you know, uh, going back on some of his campaign promises and, you know, people who were frustrated with the previous administration, I think to see him see, see, like I say, a, a big portion of cases back to them or a potentially big portion of cases back to them, um, is frustrating. On the other hand, you know, you have people who have been critical of, of 
Williams from day one who never bought into uh, mm. his his reform platform and felt like, you know, this was was giving a free pass to criminals, was being, you know, weak on crime. And, and Landry clearly, you know, was in that camp. I think, you know, they're happy to see the AG's office with kind of a more more tough on crime, um, you know, attitude coming in. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's mm. mostly the reaction. I think a lot of people are also just waiting to see how it plays out. You know, on the, on the one hand, I think there's, yeah, there's some concern about state prosecutors coming in. On the other hand, I think given how much the DA has, has kind of backtracked on some of his early promises, I think some people don't see that much of a difference in. So whether or not it's the AG's office prosecuting the cases or, or the DA's office, ultimately at this point might make not make that much of a difference in you know the reality of how they how they proceed hmm. well you've been covering this office for a long time and um the office you know, pre pre williams even um what's your take um i mean i i'm i find it really interesting you know as i point out in the piece the kind of national dynamic around progressive prosecutors in more conservative states has been uh the state governments and attorney generals and, and governors stepping in and trying to take power from local prosecutors, you know, either through suspensions or, uh, you know, passing legislation that that strips them of power if they don't prosecute certain cases. Um, and here it's really just been this, this voluntary thing. And I mean, I guess I'll say if you had told me this three years ago or four years ago, I wouldn't have believed it, you know. Um, mm. So... I'd say that's my my main reaction is is surprise, but it's been a gradual shift. And, and you know, I think I wasn't nearly as surprised when they when they made the announcement as I as I would have been, you know, like I say, several mm. years ago. So, Katie, what about you? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, the state AG, I mean, Charles Foti, who ran the worst jail in the nation, then ran went to State and became the AG. Became the AG for the state. Uh, Canizero, like you can't say that Canizero is incompetent. Like he's a competent person. He just has a different worldview, right? And so he was there. Now his worldview is going to be coming back to New Orleans. I don't know. You know Harry Connick too. The same thing. Like, um, I feel like. We voters came out and voted in reform, right? Then came this big crime wave. And I think you had people really wondering, well, now what you're going to do? And they think that they, I think that people always think that the DA's office has so much to do with crime. And honestly, the only thing that they maybe have to do with crime is that they're supposed to be according to like, you know, crime researchers that the best thing you can do is swift arrest and swift punishment, right? That's sort of the idea that that prevents crime. And I don't know how much that office has to do with that anyway. So all of this, all that to say that like, we have a lot of people who've come through the AG's office, a lot of people who've come through the DA's office, and I'm not sure any of it affected crime. So I'm not even sure that any of this in the end will do anything to to prevent or solve crime in the city. I've never seen it. And, you know, I remember Harry Connick. 
I, I, I'd call him up to ask about, you know, some, some hiding of Brady material and a conviction or something. He, you know, he's a singer, right? So he'd say, Oh, Katie, and I'd have to listen. He'd, he'd sing for a while, and then I, then he'd answer my question, right? But I, I mean, that's the thing. You, you've got charming Harry Connick. You've got really steadfast Leon Canizero. You've got charming, but back and forth Jason Williams, the politicians, people say, right? And I don't know if any of this has done anything to to make crime more palatable in the city, period. Mm. I can't help but imagine that Canizero and gang are not having some source of some sentiment of satisfaction, like, yep, you do need us and we'll we were right and we'll show you and Yeah. I mean I think I think one question I think about too is, you know, what is the DA's motivation for this? And you know, I think you can kind of view it in a, a few different ways. I mean, one, you can think maybe he took office and, you know, realized that he was wrong on a lot of these issues mm. and realized, mm. that, you know, uh, he he believes now that, you know, what he promised is not conducive to, to running, you know, an effective criminal justice apparatus. I mean, that's possible. I, you know, this, he had been in the criminal justice world for, decades before he took office. It's not like he was unaware of how these how these things work, but, right. you know, taking office can change people. Or, you know, it can be more of a political calculation and he can, you know, look at his, you know, years in office and say, mm. crime was bad. This this might be, uh, you know, people are, are pretty upset about this. And if I agree to this partnership, I can, I can you know, point to this and say, look, I, I was open. I was trying new things. I was, you know, trying to be innovative here. And, you know, and if it's successful, he can he can take credit for it. Um, so I think, you know, and, and it may be a combination of those those two things. I mean, and I think probably likely it is. But, you know, I think depending on on what your perspective is, I think that's probably the, the two um, sort of ways you can explain this this kind of pretty major shift. Well, there was that little trial balloon about running for governor, right? Wasn't, am I remembering that correct? Yeah, there was. Yeah. And, you know, J Jason Williams is someone who was class president, you know, all four years of high school, all four years of uh, college, uh, both, both years of law school. He's a, he has, he's a politically ambitious guy, I think. So I don't, you know, definitely not out of the question that he would at the very least be considering, you know, running for DA again, but maybe something um, higher beyond that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't it be convenient to have some of the highest state officials um, as your allies if you're looking at a if you're looking at state office, perhaps? Right. 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 All right. Well, great analysis. Thank you too. Again, Marty. Do you have any grand pronouncement, Nick? There's nothing grand you got going. <laughs> I, I thought all of that was pretty grand. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's more than I usually get from you. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, Aidan McCahill, an intern for The Lens through the Tulane Center for Public Service, and Lens editor Katie Rechtal. 
I'm Marta Jusen, education reporter at The Lens. The Lens has been a vital part of the news landscape, not just here in New Orleans, but nationally as a model for what we do, what we don't do, and perhaps most importantly, what we value. As news organizations shrink and become more and more polarized and entrenched in their camps, we know how important it is to provide ethical, honest, and professional journalism to help you make sense of the news. Please help us continue to provide you with the news that matters to you. Make an online donation today at thelensnola.org. Thank you. Okay, Aiden, we'll go to you now. So due to um, decades of leaks and mismanagement, New Orleans water bills rank higher on unaffordability scales than most of the nation's cities. Some residents, particularly seniors, are pinched and wondering how they can keep this going, how they can even pay their bills. What did you learn in your reporting about um, the water system and the mismanagement of it here in the city of New Orleans? I guess as a kind of an outsider, I'm a northerner, um, I really had no idea how, I guess, dysfunctional our city's water system was. And, you know, I started off the article, researching for the article, just, you know, reading past news, but it wasn't until I um, started going out in the neighborhood and actually just like knocking on doors and talking to residents. Um, everyone had something to say. Um, you know, it wasn't always unaffordable water bills. Sometimes it was, you know, you know, incorrect billing. Um, sometimes it was, you know, leakage. But if you talk to enough residents, um, you'll definitely find that a lot struggle with unaffordable water bills, which is something I had no idea. Um, I guess I've lived here for three years and I just, I didn't know until I started reporting on this issue. You say in the article that we rank among the most high, among the highest uh, water bills in the nation for a city like mm -hmm. New Orleans. Where do we fit in that in that, in that system? And um, what is the measurement that they use for affordability? I based this article off of a Guardian report, um, I think, to 2012 um, by economist Roger Colton. And he ranks on affordability as, um, you know, water bills that exceed two to 4% of your income. And I guess New Orleans, you know, having such a high rate of, you know, people living at or below the poverty line, that's why New Orleans ranks so high for unaffordability. So it's not that, you know, you know, cities in California and stuff may have higher water bills, mm -hmm. but um, it's the fact that we have so many people living at the federal poverty line. And at the same time, um, our water bills are, you know, break consistently. You know, we're top, top five in the South for sure for unaffordability. You wrote in the article about one particular woman who received a bill uh, over a thousand dollars after the house had mm -hmm. been empty and there, because there'd been, there'd been a leak nearby. I don't even, what, what's the recourse that someone has for something like that when something like that happens? The number one problem for her is she didn't really know what to do. Um, it took other people at the senior center and me asking questions. I think she ended up complaining the first time um, I asked her about it. It was kind of like a I guess like her motivation, but she, so she talked to sewage and water board. She called sewage and water board. Um, and I don't think I'll have to get back to you on that, but I don't think anything happened. She really just had no idea what to do. And I think it took Andrea Sanchez to 
like make sure she called and make sure she followed up. And then on the other hand, I, I was talking to Linda. She's the complete opposite. She calls herself a fighter. So she fights Sujin Waterboard, but that takes up a lot of effort. And time that maybe, and, and they need to get, they need to get there. They need to find their way to yeah. the offices. Yeah. And so far, I mean, I talked to Doris um, a week or two ago. And so far, you know, they told her she had to pay. They gave her a payment plan. But, you know, as for the leak and the fact that her water bill skyrocketed, even though she wasn't in the, her home, like that, that was never resolved. Like she still has to pay for that. So there's no appeal, like she, she, the appeals process has not, has not worked for her so far. Mm, wow. You write about a, um, a project on North Claiborne that's just a source of, of consternation for some of the neighbors because it, it was a big construction mm -hmm. project for a long time. Tell us about that. You were coming back from the senior center and you saw this. Yeah, I saw this huge construction project blocking, I believe, one lane of Claiborne Avenue. And so I ended up turning turning right on the the next block and um, I just knocked on the closest house and it was it happened to be Ida Justin who had lived in New Orleans. I mean, she's 77. She's lived in New Orleans mostly all of her life. And so she had a, a lot to say about, you know, pre-Katrina and post-Katrina and her experiences. Um, and, you know, her experience with that construction, it's been going on for a year and it's kind of set idle. And it reflected her experiences with the overall city. I mean, she's pretty hopeless about it. Oh. From whatever call from our conversation, you know, she doesn't see anything changing anytime soon with, you know, city government. You know, one of her quotes was, you can come back next year. It'll be exactly the same referring to the construction site. Um, it just kind of sits idle. Tell us what you learned about Katrina and the, the issues with the leaks pre-Katrina and post-Katrina. Right. Well, I don't have exact figures, but um, I know before Katrina, you know, our city's water system was already struggling. Um, you know, since the 80s, there had been a lack of funding. Um, and there was already a significant amount of leaks. Um, and then after Katrina, when a bunch of salt water kind of seeped through all the pipes and there was a lot of corrosion, I think it ended up increasing leaking like by two and a half times. Um, so for a city that was already struggling, kind of like the rest of the country um, from lack of infrastructure funding, it just accelerated that process to a whole nother level um, that kind of, you don't really see in any other city. That part of your story was so insane to me because it, mm -hmm. it says that what were half the half the treated drinking water leaks from the pipes and we're paying so we're paying double in our right. water bill than, than the amount of water we actually consume because of all the leaks. Uh, yeah, I just didn't have any idea um, that that was happening. I mean, did yeah. you, is there, are there plans to try and address these leaks or is it kind of, I mean, what, what are, what are the challenges there, I guess? Right. Well, that's something that I um hoping to address later on in my reporting. Uh, Mr. Corbin does have plans, um, but again, Susan Waterboard just struggles with so many other issues capital improvements kind of, I guess, in my opinion, is not on the top of the list. Right now, it's everyone complaining about their outrageous bills. Um, so there's so many issues that they have to deal with. But I do know there are plans in place to start fixing those leaks. But the other thing from the people I've talked about, this is something that takes decades to fix. 
um, it's not something you know you can fix in five years. I think we should really be clear about the the biggest um, criticism that people usually put on sewage and water board is about drainage. You know, given the big floods we had this weekend and stuff, that's and that's uh, to be fair. They have been putting a lot of effort into trying to get that whole power um, house together so that they can give up that old turbine number four and actually drain the streets when it rains. So that's that's one variable that I will say um, that I think that when people when you ask people their first take on sewage and water board, typically it's about can can't can't we have a rainstorm without drowning you know basically mm. um but the other but the other thing is that um but katie would you say a, a, a number two would be you know some of these outrageous water bills yeah i would say it's some of these outrageous water bills for sure i would say it's that number two is that but i think but i think um um you know there were there were those billing issues too so that so they were they had a new computer system or something that they were right. dealing with that that's started a few years ago, right? So, mm -hmm. and that's I know we're dealing with that upcoming, but I would say, yeah, I would say I, I'm not saying that they're, that they're not talking about big water bills, but I think um, we also have to really remember that they do all of that drainage stuff too, and right. so, so I think that that's been on people's minds a lot. I um, guess when I when I say outrageous water bills, I I want to clarify. Um, it's the, you know, inconsistent and incorrect water bills that I'm referring to people complaining about. Um, really high water bills is, you know, a huge issue. But when you look at, I guess, the most people complaining are those incorrect water bills, which is what sewage and water board is hoping to fix with their smart metering. Precisely. I was going to say one other thing, too, and that is that Grace had called me the other day. They don't bill for half of their water. And one of the reasons that they don't bill for half their water is because it leaks. And the other reason that they don't bill for half of their water is because they are by ordinance ordered to give free water to people like City Park and Audubon Zoo and all those places. That's it's and there are nonprofits on that list and stuff. So it's like a city hall. Mm. All those places mm -hmm. are what's called non-revenue water. And so um, I, I didn't realize that. And it's something that we'll get at in an upcoming piece. But that adds on to the leaks to make it to make it half. Before we let you go, Aiden, tell me about the um, the um, utilities assistance for for the through the emergency rental assistance program. How, how many people does that help and what does it do? That came as a result of the uh, pandemic. Well, I know they help about like 800 to 1,000 people per event. Hmm. And so since the pandemic, they've had um, 15 such events. And basically, they're just they're just there um, using pandemic relief money to you know help people struggling with both energy and water bills. Um, the thing is, they can't do both at the same time. Hmm. So people who are struggling with both kind of have to pick and choose. Yeah, I mean, when I was at Joe Brown Park, I mean, the line was out the door. They they say they consistently get lines out the door. And, you know, right now they don't have much money to have many more events. I think 
they're planning on having two more events and then that pandemic money runs out. And a lot of these people, yeah, a lot of these people are probably going to need another source of assistance. Wow. Um, that's not there right now. Well, we're glad that you're going to keep an eye on it for us, Aiden. It's a really important issue in the city. Yeah, and thank you for having me on, Carolyn. I really appreciate it. I think we're taking Mardi Gras week off, guys. So uh, talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye, guys. Yes. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. See you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, Aidan McCahill, intern for The Lens through the Tulane Center for Public Service, and Lens editor Katie Rechtall. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Happy Mardi Gras, y'all. <laughs>